all of the best things that have happened to me in my life have come about not as a result of my plan. What if the reason that we don't feel like we have enough is because we don't give enough? We don't have the courage to give enough. That's what today's guest is gonna be talking about, just a really counterintuitive way to find true fulfillment in your life. Welcome to The Dream Beyond. I'm your host, Nick Tarasio. I'm a CEO, musician, and overall seeker of truth, inspiration, and simply put, how to live the most fulfilling life possible. Growing up surrounded by extremely wealthy and successful people gave me unique and unfiltered perspectives of those who have seemingly made it. And on The Dream Beyond, we're letting you in on what it really takes to achieve your dreams, what happens when it turns out your destination isn't the promised land you were expecting, and how to process the lessons from your past while mapping a course to true fulfillment. Let's get started. All right. Hey, everybody. I'm really excited uh, to bring to you today an author who has sold more than 3 million books, multiple time New York, uh, multiple New York Times bestseller. Uh, some of his books are The Go-Giver, The Red Circle, the, the, the Latte Factor. I mean, these are incredible books. I've actually read two out of three of those already. Uh, <laughs> you started a high school as a teenager. I'm still like trying to process what it is to start a high school as a teenager. I barely liked going to my high school. You're an award-winning <laughs> composer and a cellist. And everybody, please welcome John David Mann. He is uh, so generous with his time today being here with us. No, thank you, Dick. It's good. It's it's very very cool to be here. It's funny. That's the thing. People always latch onto that. Like you started a high school when you were a kid. Um, it's like it was a long time ago, you know. But but yes, that was that was my that was my claim to fame, perhaps. So amazing. Well, you know, again, I think just from my intro, it's clear that you are quite the high achiever, and you've taken a circuitous path to becoming an author with all the things you've done. And I'm, I'm, I always wonder when I hear many high achievers do this, they kind of go from thing to thing to thing. And other people might look that, at, at that as a failure of like, I started as this and I ended up yeah. as that and then I ended up as this. How did you have the confidence to keep starting over, trying something new? And what guided you through it? Yeah, it, it's, I guess, I feel like Don Quixote told to get windmills. I, my, my life is kind of like a pinball game, you know, bing, 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 bing. And it, it was not, I will say it's not by design. You know, people say, well, how did you get, did you always have this burning desire to be a writer? How do you, how do you get started writing? I don't know how I got started writing. No, I didn't have a burning desire to be a writer. In fact, I had other burning desires and I came to writing, which is really what my career is now. It's what I really have, have, you know, pinned to the wall of my life today. But I came to that late in life and, you know, 3 million books, New York Times bestsellers, all of that. That's like the second half of my life. So. Honestly, I have been pursuing passions since I was a kid without a lot of design in terms of where it was going. Uh, uh, I've mostly formulated my game plans after the fact. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good idea. Those of you listening, I'm not sure you should follow me in this. Um, but yeah, I started out the, you know, the high school thing. It was in a way, I guess, my first entrepreneurial act. Um, probably my first entrepreneurial act was when I was 13, my mom was a teacher. She taught Greek mythology. She had a passion for Greek culture and that, 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 you know, translated to me. And she was going to take a group of school kids over to Greece and perform a play, Prometheus Bound by Aeschylus, you know, thousands of years old, an incredible play at this theater up in Epidaurus, where it was originally premiered over 2000 years ago or 3000 years ago, whenever it was. 
And she said, I was going to be one of those kids. And she said, I need music. I'm going to set eight of the choruses to music. So I'd like you to write the music. And I'm like, I'm 13 years old. I don't know how to compose music. I can't do that. And she said, I'm sure you can. And so I did. Um, and it, later that won awards. It won my first award when I was when I was 13. Actually, by that time, I was 15. And I, I won an award for that music I wrote when I was 13. And that kind of got me started on my path of doing things that looked impossible, but I didn't really know they were impossible. And I just did them anyway. Um, school, I started when I was 17. And like you, I hated my high school. <laughs> I left my high school. My parents allowed me to drop out and spearhead a group of disaffected teenagers to create our own high school. We wanted to have a school where we could learn stuff. We wanted to learn shit, man. That was our deal. We were tired of, of spending eight hours of every day in this gigantic concrete box where we just like, rah, 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 rah. it sounded like the, you know, the adults in a peanuts special, wop, 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 wop. And they weren't teaching us anything that really fascinated us or really interested us uh, in these public high schools where we were, where we were locked in. So we, we started our own school and we studied everything from computer science to, to existential literature, to knitting, to organic food, to, you know, you name it. Uh, it was a gas. It was a blast. The school went on for 10 years. Um, we had dozens of teachers, volunteer teachers, mostly from the ranks of our parents and others in the community. And um, it was it was a gas. It was it was great. So, yeah, from from there, I won't trace the whole path, but I went through classical music. I, I did that. I was that was my career path for a while. I got very involved in nutrition and natural health. I did that for a while. That kind of bumped me backwards into journalism. Because I was always the guy writing the newsletter or the the article or whatever, and eventually I spent oh two decades uh, of my life editing other people's stuff, which turned into writing my own stuff, which turned into you know where I am now. None of it by design, all of it led by whatever it was that fascinated me, and I you know and I I couldn't not do um, at at the moment. How would you advise someone who's young and driven and facing that challenge of, you know, do I pursue the career that's going to serve me or do I follow my passion? Like, I'd be curious to know what, what, what were the blessings and the curses? Because there's always a, a downside to pursuing passion without any regard for a plan. You know, you said that a career path of, of going bing, 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 bing could look from the outside like failure, a string of failures. And honestly, it, it can feel like that on the inside as well. It felt like that to me at many times. It's like I was doing this for a while, but then this hasn't really worked out. I mean, I planned to be a soloist, a major recording, you know, marquee cello soloist. That was my my ambition. That didn't happen. It didn't happen because I abandoned it um, to do something else. But but you know, I would look back after a few decades and say, what have I really accomplished? So it it's a great. I'm just saying it's a great question. Um, there is this kind of you have these two two poles of sort of freedom and security uh, of, you know, what's my fallback? Where is this headed in terms of nailing down something that's going to support my life? And it's going to work. I'm going to be successful versus what's got my pulse pounding. What's got my interest. Um, and, and I, I think it's, you know, it can be incredibly naive to say, just do what you love and the money follows, just follow your passions and you'll, and, and, and success will find you. Because that is honestly not always true. Um, 
it's important to do what you love, but you do it within the context of a world. And does the world have a need or a desire for what you do that you love? You know, if what you love is to create sculptures out of discarded cigarette butts, because you find there's a you know, great metaphorical message in that. Well, that's, that's super. Is anybody going to pay you for that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so it's, it's a conundrum. I don't know how to answer. What I do know is this. Sometimes you pursue what is practical in front of you and discover in that something that you love. And I'll give you an example. I edited. I'll tell you, Nick, I didn't say, man, I want to be an editor. I got into editing because I needed to put money on the table. I needed to keep the lights on. Um, I found in that subjects that I was fascinated in, but honestly, editing other people's stuff was kind of a grind. Um, it wasn't my stuff. It was their stuff. And I was kind of like being a janitor. I was cleaning up their messy writing. And it never occurred to me that there was going to be a passion in that for me. But what happened was, unknown, unbeknownst to me, all those years of editing were training me how to clean up my own writing, which is a huge part of being a successful writer. As it turns out, I discovered in that an incredible passion for excellence in the written word. It's like this so turns me on, I can't even begin to tell you. I, I wake up at five o'clock in the morning to make my writing better, to take right. a piece of stuff that I, I, I dabbled with yesterday and look at it now and start to make it, make it uh, uh, you know, fantastic, where before it was mediocre. I didn't set out to do that. It found me. I, I kind of found it through the process of doing something that I needed to do. So, you know, sometimes I think that being open to opportunity where you don't see it, um, being open to kind of what circumstances present you, even if it doesn't seem like the most ideal uh, uh, path, can hold hidden nuggets that lead to, uh, to hidden chambers in which your dreams can come true. <laughs> it's interesting. I heard two concepts emerge in there that uh, I'm really inspired by. One is, uh, are you familiar with Ikigai? That Japanese yeah, yeah. principle? Yes. Like, so I heard a little yeah, yeah. bit of that, right? Do what you yeah, love, yeah. do what the world needs, do what people are willing to pay you for. And also you're good at it. Yeah, uh, yeah. The other thing I really heard is this balance between the cycling between I'm going to passionately go out and fight for something, but I'm also going to know when to surrender to my circumstance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll give you a great example. Um, there was a point in my life when what I was doing, I was involved in a, and I had built a huge sales organization and this is in the world of nutrition and it was doing fabulously well. I was making millions and it over the, over a couple of years, it kind of crashed, began crashing. I saw it crashing. I saw the marketplace going away. I saw the whole thing shifting under my feet and I had no idea what to do. Um, I kind of panicked. So I decided, well, I love editing stuff. I'll be a writer. I'm going to be a screenwriter. I fell in love with screenplays. I'm going to be an A-list Hollywood screenwriter. And that was my deal. And I was firmly on that path. I went out to Hollywood. I, I, I did conferences. I, I gobbled up dozens of, of incredible screenplays, learning what makes them tick. This is, when I get interested in something, I like to you know, just dive in and take everything apart and learn it. I was on my way to Hollywood to be an A-list screenwriter when Bob Berg knocked on my door and said, hey, I got this idea for a book. I really like you to write it with me because I, I can't write this kind of book. And I was like, oh, damn, I don't have time for this. 
and do it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see the concept. I don't go give her, go get her. I get the idea. I didn't see it. And honestly, Nick, I wouldn't have even looked at it twice if it wasn't for the fact that I had a friendship with Bob. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, let me, let me do this. And so we, we sat down one afternoon, talked over a few ideas. That was it. In fact, I think it was, may have been the first time we were ever physically in the same room. We'd had a relationship on email before that. Went back home. And uh, when I had a free couple of days, I doodled with some ideas. He'd, he'd, he'd made some preliminary notes and he'd sketched some drafts of some, of some chapters and some characters. And I kind of started riffing on that. And I wrote up a chapter and I sent it to him. And he's like, God, this is incredible. And I loved writing it. And so I wrote the whole book. It took us a couple of weeks, maybe six weeks to write the book. It has sold over a million copies. It made my career. It completely changed my life. And when it came into my life, it was an irritation <laughs> in the way of what I was intending to do. Um, and you know what? I'm still not an A-list Hollywood screenwriter. Screenplays never, I haven't got a single produced screenplay. Uh, you know, the world had a better idea. And it's you amazing. have incredible ideas. Everybody has incredible ideas, but sometimes the world has a better idea for implementing the, uh, the passion and the drive that you have. It's something that some form or context that you don't have the omniscience to foresee. So yeah, you have to always yeah. be open to the, what the world tells you. You know, it's when I was thinking about some of the takeaways from your book, uh, that I struggle so much with receiving. Right. Yeah. Even as this concept of give, 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 I don't, I remember someone had to teach me at some point when someone compliments you, just say, thank you. Stop yes. playing it down or being like, no, not me. It's actually not gracious. Yeah. And yeah. in many ways, I hear that in that story too, of knowing when to receive and say, you know what, I'm going to allow this friendship to shine on me. And it's amazing in that moment of receiving, you literally said that made your career. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It changed my life, made my career. All of the best things that have happened to me in my life have come about not as a result of my plan mm. or have That's not powerful. come about as a result of my plan. The go-giver is one. The writing career is one. My wife is one. I didn't plan to meet her, marry her. I'll give you another example. I was well into my career as an author or co-author of, of nonfiction stuff like The Go-Giver, the whole series of Go-Giver books. I've done a bunch of other nonfiction books, how-to books, books on, on areas of expertise. I call them topical nonfiction. A couple of memoirs, like you mentioned, The Red Circle. Um, uh, my literary agent put me in touch with Brandon Webb, the Navy SEAL, former Navy SEAL sniper. And Brandon and I connected around. He needed a writer to work with him on his memoir. We wrote the memoir. You know, my, my uh, agent emailed me and said, I know this isn't your kind of book. I know you don't do this. I know this isn't your area, but are you interested in taking a look at this? And I read a one page that Brandon had written about the book. And I said, holy shit. I wrote back to her and said, I don't want to do this. I am doing this. There's no way I'm not doing this. <laughs> so this is so fascinating. This dude, you know, he grows up son of two, two California hippies, becomes a Navy SEAL sniper instructor uh, in one of the first platoons to land in Afghanistan after 9-11. I'm writing the story. So I wrote Brandon's memoir with, with, we partnered on his memoir, New York Times bestseller. Um, it cemented our relationship. He wanted to write a few more books. So we, we wrote a bunch more nonfiction books. And then here comes the point of the story. 
Brandon pitched me this idea for a novel. He said, would you ever be interested in writing a novel? I don't know how many words it is, seven words, eight words. I don't know how, if you'd be interested in writing a novel. Those words also changed my life because I knew nothing about writing novels. To me, the idea of writing a novel was like climbing, you know, Kilimanjaro when I was used to taking little hikes on hills in my, in my neighborhood. Um, it terrified me. And my mind said, absolutely not. There's no way I can do that. I don't have the skills. I don't have the training. And my mouth said, sure, I'd love to. And we did. And that has changed my life because I'm now I'm a novelist. You know, we've that first novel came out. It was nominated for a Barry Award. Um, the second novel was called Jeff Deaver called it the, one of the best crime novels of the year. I mean, these novels have come out to this fantastic critical acclaim. And I absolutely would never have put a single word on paper of a novel if the opportunity hadn't come along and just said, boom. So wow, that's what was my, that's wasn't my plan, but there it is. So I'd love to, the, I'd love to, the, the, I oh, guess my, ahead. my, I, the point I'll make that is that the world has wisdom. If you're listening, if you keep your ears open. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, uh, you know, it's something that from the, from the standpoint of scarcity, I think that the fundamental belief under that, at least in my case has been that, um, the world is happening to me in those moments. Not that the world is happening for me. Yeah. And that's what I mean by the receiving. It's like, even when something gets really hard in my life, going into victim, instead of saying, what's the gift here, where's the gift yeah. and if I, if I hang on for the ride, but I'd love to transition into a, a big question, which is again, as someone who's done so many things, I wonder how you relate to identity being that many people's identity is what they do. But since yeah. you've done so many things, what is your identity? How, how do you relate to that? God, that's, that's a, such a great point. Uh, I know for the first, I'm going to say 50 years of my life, right? Or 40 years, certainly for decades, all my life as a young adult, I completely identified with what I do which is a deadly trap or was a deadly trap for me because I was constantly not achieving enough to validate myself as a human being. It's like, I, I was always looking to the big win. There was always ahead of me. Um, I had, you know, you know, so every, for every, every big solo cello career that I didn't have, it was like a, something I didn't accomplish for every goal I fell short on. It was, um, you know, it was a personal crushing blow. And, Identifying with what I do, you know how this famous dichotomy, they talk about uh, Descartes and said, I think, therefore I am, er, uh, cogito ergo sum. And uh, uh, I mean, Eckhart Tolle says that, that he has it backwards. You know, it's when I'm thinking that I'm not. <laughs> um, for me, the modern, the modern Descartes philosophy is, is I, I do, therefore I am. You know, we, we are justified in our existence by the evidence of our accomplishments. Um, Social media only amplifies what's already there. And it's a, it's a burr in our saddle, a stone in our psychic shoe. It's a trap. It's a death trap. For me, for years, I was never living satisfied with the present moment because I was always on a path to accomplish some goal. I think goal setting is, 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 a, is a treacherous thing. It's a beautiful thing, but a treacherous thing. It was somewhere in the last... 10, 15 years, I suddenly woke up one day and realized that I am, I'm in my third marriage. My first two crumbled. The third one has been like the charm, the lucky charm. Third strike hit it out of the park. I live with my best friend. 
I get up every morning after a good night's sleep. I feel rested. I do what I love. Some days are frustrating. Some days are, are, are not in, in my writing world, in my career world. But I'm just gloriously happy in the day that I have with my wife, with my life, with my existence. And that's kind of a new experience for me. Um, professionally, I identify, as we say these days, I identify as a writer. Uh, I don't identify as a cellist or, or as an as a, a educational entrepreneur or as a nutritional entrepreneur or as a sales director. I've done all these things. Um, right now, I identify as a novelist, but not really. Um, it's just a hat that I wear. It's a thing that I love. And I, I, I think that, that this is tricky. Um, because I've always been a very conscious, I've always been very conscious about legacy. I've always want, wanted my life to matter during my life, but I've also always wanted it to matter after I'm gone. I don't know. I can't say why, but I always really wanted my life to matter after I was gone. So legacy, this whole idea matters to me. I think it matters to a lot of people. I think it's one reason we love our kids so much. They are going to be here after we're gone, usually. Um, and so... I think that my impact after I'm gone is going to happen mainly through what I write. My writings will be here after I go. The Go-Giver is going to be here. The novels will be here after. The Red Circle will be here after I'm gone. But where I've got to is it isn't the writing that will make a difference in someone's life when I'm not here anymore. It's going to be my, my experience of the joy of living. My my experience of exuberance that leaks into that writing that will leak out into people who read it. Um, it's really what I'm experiencing right now, talking to you, what I'm experiencing right now, living my day, allowing that in, you talk about abundance, allowing kind of the, the abundance of exuberance that I think the universe is made out of, allowing that to seep into my core and leak into my writing, even if it's, you know, writing, it's a crime thriller. Um, that's what I have as uh, traces of that is what I have to, to leave after I, Interesting. you know, shuffled off. I mean, it sounds a lot like the answer to you're not necessarily what you do, but you're how you do it is what I yes. hear and what you're saying. Yeah. How you do it and how you, and how you experience it. Yeah. 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 What your experience that's of incredible. it is. It's, it's funny because I've, I've written all these, these books, like the Go-Giver books and the Latte Factor, another parable. Um, and these parables, by the way, you know, a parable is a book that it's like, it's like a little story that you write to illustrate a point. So in a crappy version, a mediocre parable is kind of like a, 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 a PowerPoint disguised as a story. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Finley disguises a story with human characters that are really like kind of cardboard figures. I send out to write parables that feel so real, that have characters in them that feel so real that when you finish, when you turn the last page, it's really affected you emotionally. Because that's the only way people learn from a book, I think, or learn from a story. It, 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 it has to touch you. It has to move you. I, so, I would agree with that. Yeah. So I've, I, I've written all these parables that are very much from an abundant kind of mindset. They're about how the world is an abundant place, how it's trying to treat you well if you'll let it. It's if you learn these principles of interaction, your life becomes bigger, your life becomes richer, not at the sacrifice of somebody else, but to the, to the betterment of other people. It's a very uh, uh, 
opposite of a zero-sum game. That's kind of the message. And over here, I'm writing these crime novels with serial killers and suffering and tragedy. And it's kind of a weird thing. Like a lot of my friends, I, I, when I started writing these, I thought that a lot of my friends would go, dude, this isn't you. What are you doing? But it is. It, it, it is the same. It's, 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 I don't want people to read a book like The Go-Giver and come away saying, oh, this guy thinks that the whole world is a bed of roses. It's all unicorns and, and, and fairy tales and rainbows. You know, suffering is real. The world is a hard place. When we talk about abundance, it's, it's so easy to, to have it inside this reaction of like, yeah, you think there aren't people dying in the streets? You think poverty isn't real? You think suffering is? No, it's real. The world is a hard place. And the universe is an abundant place. And reconciling the tragedy and the glory, the suffering and the exuberance of, of the world is, um, is a fascinating thing. It's a challenging thing. I always come down the side of the universe is benign for all of the evidence to the contrary <laughs> that it is a benign universe that's rooting yeah. for our success, rooting for our fulfillment, rooting for our joy. Um, and I, I love finding the seeds of that, the kernels of that in these crime stories. I think that's why people love crime stories so much. Finding the heroism, finding the hope, finding the, the little triumphs. Um, so yeah, it's, that's my life now. You know, you kind of set up my next question, which is that, uh, I would identify in earlier life as a pessimist. And it wasn't until I realized that I lost in both cases, right? If I was right about things being bad, I lose. And if, I'm, yeah. if things are go well, I'm still a loser. So yeah. like, it's just, I always had the wrong perspective. So I think I've come to that side of, I don't know if it was yeah. Einstein who said either everything means everything or everything means nothing. So I'm like, I might yeah. as well choose that everything means everything. And it's all in service of me because to not live that way is just needless yeah. suffering. Yeah. So the, the, the reason for teeing up that question is, the go-giver really affected me because it really highlighted my relationship to scarcity or the lack of abundance and why that was so hard for me mm -hmm. to say like, look, my life is hard. I'm busy. Things are falling apart at times. How am I supposed to put other people first and be a giver? And then I realized everything I've written in my life, everything I've created, all the music I've written came from darkness. It came from suffering and I would have terrible relationships so I could feel pain and then spit out inspiration. How do you relate to this idea of creating from light and creating from abundance when the world's good enough in that case, the world is already enough. How do you, how do you find the inspiration in that? Wow. That's a, that's dude, that's a deep question. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we didn't break the podcast, but yeah, I think you broke me. I, 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 um, you know, first I'll say in early in my life, I think I was a sort of a blind optimist. Uh, I was, I was a ferocious optimist, not despite the suffering in the world, but like refusing to see it. Like I was, I was staunchly optimistic, like the, like the dark side of life didn't exist and suffered a, a handful, a series, a succession of tragedies myself and difficulties, a bankruptcy, death of a child, loss of marriages. I mean, I went through a lot of crappy stuff that try as I like, I couldn't deny was all real. 
I mean, I, I, I reached a point where I felt like I had gotten kind of crushed under, under the thumb of a, of a not very kindly thinking universe. But now I'm a, an optimist um, who embraces the dark side. One of my favorite uh, uh, crime authors, Robert Crace, who writes the Elvis Cole novels, if you look at his bio on Twitter, it says grumpy optimist, um, resent, resentful of vegan. And I, I, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm a, I'm a, uh, a dark optimist for me. Abundance is trust that there's more than enough. Although finding it, getting the path to it is not always smooth and not always easy. I've never had a, 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 a profound sense of scarcity in terms of money. I've always kind of had this, uh, this abiding belief that there would be enough money, even though I've been through a lot of poverty in my life. It's never really worried me. I've always like, there's more coming. I know there's more out there. It's always fine. It's never stressed me out that much. So I always thought that I had an abundant mindset until I realized a few decades ago that I had profound lack mentality in relation to time. I was like, there's never enough time. And so I was fairly selfish in relation to other people in relation to time. I'm happy to help you if it involves money. If it involves taking my time, not so much. Um, and so I've had to learn. I've had, first I had to acknowledge that. I had to understand that, that I'm living with a sense of scarcity of time because, you know, time is finite. It's taken me a while to get to the place of realizing that when I am more generous with my time, I end up having more time. It sounds bizarre. It feels bizarre, but it is the case. When I am more generous with my time, I end up having more of the time that I need. Um, for me, also, a lot of that has come, has come with learning what to say no to. Uh, with a sense of scarcity, I would have a tendency to say yes to every opportunity that came along out of a sense of scarcity. Early in my career as a writer, I was doing a lot of co-writing, a lot of taking on other people's writing projects. And I would basically say yes to anything that came along, even projects that I wasn't that excited about because I felt like I had to. I reached a point. It's funny. One, one, one time I got a contract for a book. It was one of my very first books. In fact, it was my very first book just before The Go-Giver. I got a contract for it. And it was like my first con New York contract for a book. I got an advance for this book. It was great. I got my, my advance, my contract for, an, for, for the next book. I, I met with publishers. This publisher was very excited about the book. It was Harper, Harper Collins. They wanted to do the book. They said, it's a deal. We'll ink it tomorrow. I went back to my hotel room and I called my current employer and resigned and said, I'm, I was editor for a journal. And I said, I love you guys. I've had a great time here, but I'm going to be writing books. So I, I resigned. And the next day, I got a call from my agent. The publisher had backed out. <laughs> oh shit, man! Just like my parachute just collapsed, and I just resigned. Um, and it was at that moment that that I realized, paradoxically, I had to start saying no to projects I didn't want to do. They really didn't suit me, um, because I had to make room for the stuff that was going to work. I had to make room for the stuff that, that was, that was going to be really a great project. I had taken this project, you know, out of desperation and something in me knew that, I don't think I'm answering your question, but I'm going to get, get, get to it. 
something in me knew that that wasn't a project that was going to, that was going to bear fruit. But like it was, I taking it, I was taking it out of desperation, but I took it anyway. It was only when the universe yanked that rug out from under me. I was like, okay, this is, this is definitely a message. I, I am opening up my ears here. Uh, I hear you. Um, so the first thing I guess I'll say around that is creating out of a sense of scarcity has always led me astray. Um, creating out of a sense of, I got to do this because if I don't, you know, uh, that feeling of anxiety, creating from anxiety, it, it doesn't work for me. Um, creating from the total lack of anxiety. I have to sometimes get up in the morning and sit in my chair, talk about abundance, not in terms of money, not in terms of time, but in terms of ideas. I, like most writers I know, suffer from the belief that I don't know how to write this next book, that this, that these, these last two books worked, but I'm out at sea without a paddle. I'm up just creek here with this next book. I don't know what I'm doing. I'll have to sit down in my chair at five o'clock in the morning with a cup of tea and give myself an hour of just like limbering up my mental muscles and getting rid of, rid of the negative message I'm telling myself. I'll, I'll actually verbalize them. I put, put, my, put my thought process out loud and hear myself saying, I have no idea how to write this book. I have no idea what's, what to do with this chapter. And I'll say, dude, really? You have no idea? Well, you know what? That's okay. Because there's an abundance of ideas out there. Just shut up. Stop with this. Take a breath and the ideas will come. Um, I have to actually work to make myself a relaxed, open channel almost every day of the writing process. Uh, it, it's, does that make sense? I, I think that has, I think that has, un, think yeah, that has no, entre, entrepreneurial, uh, uh, over, uh, overtones as well, or entrepreneurial versions as well. Yeah. I mean, I hear these incredible themes coming through in what you share. So two things came through on that, that really, again, stuck out for me. Number one is this idea of meditating or getting access to your underlying motivations behind your decisions that, you know, again, it's easy to lie to yourself and say, oh, I'm abundant. That's why I do everything that comes to me when in reality, it's a scarcity play. Right. Yeah. And so that, that idea of really asking the question, am I doing this for anxiety? Am I doing this for abundance and love to live in that energy attracts that energy is what it sounds like. But the second thing that I heard too, that I, I really, really love is it sounds like, especially as a person who wants to be a writer, who wants to create it sounds like when you really stop and listen is when you're guided. It sounds like that's when you connect to, to some source. And I love that idea too of, it actually ties up to the next point. And again, I only recently found out about the go-giver marriage. Um, wow. And I often don't shut up. I often just talk and talk and talk. <laughs> the podcast is amazing for me because I have to sit here, ask questions and shut up and listen. But I'm very curious to know more about this idea of you know, again, I literally have lights shining on me right now. Most of my life was the desire to be in the spotlight. And as a person who performed on stages, maybe you can relate to this. I'm yeah. finding that right now, especially in relationship to my fiance, maybe it's time for me to allow the light to be on her, for me to be a supporter, and maybe even to be the unsung hero at times. Uh, so I'm curious, again, I know nothing about the go-giver marriage, so forgive me asking about something that I haven't read yet. Uh, I'm curious to know how that relationship to being a listener shows up in abundance, in creation, in connecting to another human being. Yeah, yeah, man, it's, it's so good. 
you know, the, the Go-Giver Marriage, which I co-wrote with my wife. Um, and for those who don't know, the Go-Giver, the original Go-Giver came out, which I co-wrote with Bob Berg. Um, we went in this book 50-50. It's 50-50 financially, but it's also 50-50 in terms of our ideas. It's like our book. And then I wrote three more Go-Giver books, all with Bob. Um, so Bob and I have this, you know, decades-long history of writing these Go-Giver books. Go-Giver Marriage, Bob says, I'm out because I've never been married. I wouldn't, it wouldn't be, be cool. Um, so my wife and I wrote this book together and she is a marriage therapist. That's like been, been, you know, one of her many careers has been as a marriage therapist. So this is kind of her area. Um, but it basically, we took the core go-giver idea, which is, which is the more you give, the more you have. It's a basic, the basic counterintuitive go-giver principle. I call it Pindar's principle. The more you give, the more you have which is the opposite of conventional economics, which is the more you, you, you spend, right? The less you have. Um, we say the more you give, the more you have. And applied that to marriage and relationships. It's the go-giver marriage, but it really applies to all close relationships. Uh, and as in the go-giver, there are five laws of stratospheric success. In the go-giver marriage, there's, there's also, we call them five secrets to lasting love. And What's at the core of those five is um, approaching a relationship with the spirit of generosity. We say 50-50 marriage is a formula for failure. 50 marriages, like, let's make sure this is fair, right? We each do the dishes three and a half times per week. And yeah, there's your money and there's my money. And make sure that, you know, you don't do more errands than I do. And, you know, and this whole idea of, of equity, um, toss that out the window. And rather go for um, uh, the spirit of generosity. And one of the places that that manifests, we have a principle we call allow. One of the secrets is to allow. Is to allow the other person to be who they are, how they are, you know, and, and not try to control them. A lot of the trouble that happens in relationships grows from the seed of the need to control or the desire to control. Um, to make you like, be more like me or be more like what I think would make me feel comfortable. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed with entrepreneurs that's really fascinating, I've seen this, especially with guys, but I'm sure it happens both ways, um, where, you know, you have this relationship and then you're together and this guy is successful and this woman is supporting him. And then this woman's career starts to take off and now she starts to be successful and the guy starts to get uncomfortable because of that, like feels threatened by that. And I'm like, dude, are you crazy? This is like, this should be your dream. It's like, when my wife, yeah, when my wife started to, to uh, step out, because I had done scores of podcasts, thousands of podcasts for all my books over the years. And my wife was always like in the background. She never did podcasts. We put out the Go-Giver Marriage and all of a sudden I'm on podcasts with her and she's talking 80% of the time and I'm just like 20% of the time. I'm mostly, I would always get in the podcast saying my job is to, is to see her and try to look handsome. And, you know, she, she's the brains, I'm the brawn. And this is like my dream come true because when she's in the spotlight, when, she, when her star shines, it's like the rising tide that raises all ships. My life, man, gets better. My life just gets better. And I think that that's, you know, the, the truth that underlies that is that when you, when you live in a relationship, living this concept of, if I can help make her life better, it's going to make my life better. 
as opposed to, well, if I give her more support, then am I getting less support? It's like, is it if, is it a, no, you don't apply the laws of conventional economics to a relationship because if you do, the moment you do, you're lost. The moment you try to keep score, you've lost the relationship because now we've gone to our separate corners and it's you versus me. Um, and I, I love what you're saying, Nick, this thing about how maybe it's time for me to be in the, to, to let her be in the spotlight. Um, it, it's what happens is when she gets in the glow of the spotlight, if there's a real us, if there's a real soul and spirit to this relationship, if it's a living, growing thing, then you are just getting warmed. You're basking in it. You're basking in it. Um, is that the, it's like the healthier she is. One of the best things you can do for a relationship is take care of your own health. We forget that, you know, we think that part of being generous is to take care of yourself because if you, if you go into a marriage being all self-sacrificing and I'm just going to be here for you and I'm going to just be a martyr, um, you go into a relationship and sacrifice your own health when you're 60, when you're 70, you're, you're going to suddenly become an incredible burden to the other person. So it's kind of like the thing in the airline, you know, when, when we're, if the airline gets in trouble, put your own oxygen mask on first and then help the kid in a relationship. Yeah. Part of a healthy relationship is taking care of yourself. Um, it, it's not you or me. It's not, you know, weighing, cutting up the pie. So I think you're absolutely right. It, it, when it's time for the other person to shine, it's like, Damn, this is great for the us, great for the for the for the all of us. That's powerful stuff. I guess the, the the last question I have for you today is for the skeptic in me and for the skeptic in many of us, it sounds beautiful. The idea I give more and strangely I get more. How do you address that skeptic that says that just doesn't make sense? Um it it doesn't make sense. When you look at it from the point of view of marbles, like I got a dozen marbles, I'll give you two, but I've still got 10, which is good. Well, shit, if I give you four, now I've only got eight. If I give you all 12, I've got no marbles. So in terms of marbles, yes, it doesn't make sense. But human beings aren't collections of marbles. Human beings are collections of, of, of feeling and energy. So think about this. If you give somebody uh, respect, do you now have less respect? Hmm. No. If you're point. somebody who gives somebody, if you're somebody who gives your time, your attention, your care, your trust, your respect, uh, if you give love, does that make you suddenly have less? Because you, you gave up some of yours? Love isn't marbles. Uh, in the area of human feelings and human behavior, it's really easy to see how giving more ends up making you a richer person. You get a richer reputation. People like you more. People take care of you more. People respect you more because they're, you're that kind of person. They look up to you because you're somebody who has been a mentor to so many, who has helped so many. Um, you look at the actors in Hollywood who, if you go inside, People like, uh, you know, someone like Ben Stiller is an example. Ben Stiller is somebody who has helped lift up a ton of other people's careers. People in Hollywood love him. They don't love him because he's funny 
or because he's talented. It's because he's a go-giver. You find actors like that all through Hollywood. And you also find actors all through Hollywood who aren't go-givers. And people hate working with them. And guess what? Their careers tank because, because you know, directors don't want to work with this asshole who's always, always out for himself. You can see how yeah. this whole go-giver idea works in terms of, of reputation. Um, if you pursue it uh, consistently, it works, in the, it works in economics, it works in career, it works in, in enterprise, it works everywhere. That's amazing. Well, I, I think kind of the closing takeaway for me is just to continually have the courage and trust that giving wins out from taking. Uh, I, I think yeah. that that is why the book was so moving to me is that my skeptic was calmed by reading the book and by hearing you speak. And also, wouldn't that just be a much more beautiful experience of life to know that that's exactly how it all works? You just give, 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 and you always have enough. It's amazing enough. how much, it's amazing how many phenomenally successful people actually live with the spirit of generosity. And I don't mean giving money to charity. It's got nothing to do with money. A spirit of generosity, having a, a giving nature. The, the point I want to make, the last point I want to make about that is it's really, really important to understand that we're, you know, we're not talking about being the martyr or like giving yourself to every request that comes along or like giving your stuff away for free or all these kinds of, of sort of artificial givingnesses. It, you have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of the gift that you are yourself. Um, learning how to say no, learning how to have intelligent boundaries, boundaries that serve you as well as other people is a critical part of being a go-giver. Um, it, it's, so it's not being a schnook and getting mm. yourself taken advantage of. It's the opposite of being naive. Well, that sounds like, a, again, a beautiful quest for most people in life to figure out the balance between the two, to yeah. be giving, but not giving away oneself in the process. Right. Uh, so again, this was a deeply meaningful podcast for me. I've, I've just really been moved by your work. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I just want to make a couple suggestions for people that are listening. Go check out John David Mann, M-A-N-N.com. Uh, John just told me today he's got a book that you could download on there for free by signing up on his site. It's, if, let me see if I got this right, How to Write Good or at least, at least Gooder. Is that right? How to Write Good or at Least um, Gooder. Awesome. Well, again, I'm, I'm someone that uh, loves the craft of writing, so I'm very curious to check that out. Also, I will be getting a copy of The Go-Giver Marriage to read with my fiance. You All should right. check that out as well. And uh, I'm going to call out Brandon Webb, our, our mutual friend, who uh, just an incredible guy. And uh, he uh, has a site with you. It's Webb, W-E-B-B-N-A-N-D, man, M-A-N-N.com. You can check that out. And they have a book, Blind Fear, coming out in July, which, again, I will absolutely be checking that out. Uh, I'm just so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Dream Beyond. I hope that you received whatever message or inspiration you were meant to get from today's episode. I had a great time recording it for you. If you love the show, please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review it. It really helps get the word out. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Instagram.com slash Nick Tarasio, LinkedIn.com slash in slash Nick Tarasio, or YouTube.com slash N Tarasio.